Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 213, and today's guest is Corey Thomas, chairman and CEO of Rapid7. Corey has an impressive background in terms of his career path and his many accomplishments as a leader, which we discuss in great detail, but that is only part of the story. I was also very excited to talk with Corey about Rapid7's diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. The company has been very open about their goals and in progress. In 2018, Rapid7 set a goal to have 50% of their workforce to be women and people of color. The company published a DEI annual report for 2020, which shared their results. They achieved 49.7% of their goal. And one would think that they would just round up and say, mission accomplished. But as noted from a recent blog post on VentureFizz from Christina Luconi, Rapid7's chief people officer, they are immensely proud of their progress to date, but they know they still have so much more work to do. Thus, we talk at length about how Rapid7 has gone about building a more diverse and inclusive workforce, and Corey shares lots of advice on how other companies can follow. In this episode of our podcast, we also cover Corey's background growing up and his decision to study computer science and electrical engineering at Vanderbilt, his experience at AT&T during college and working at Deloitte after graduating, then attending business school at HBS, his time working at Microsoft as a group product manager, where he worked on one of the largest releases of SQL Server back in the day, the details on Rapid7, plus his career progression to CEO and the company's IPO, advice on building a career path to a CEO position, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you might want to add a VentureFizz subscription. It is our employment branding and hiring solution that helps to keep your company top of mind for our targeted audience of professionals in the tech industry. A VentureFizz subscription includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to our exclusive content series, and more. Send an email to info at VentureFizz.com for more details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Corey. Corey, thanks so much for joining us. Keith, it's so great to spend some time with you. Yeah, good to catch up. I think we had a conversation uh, about four years ago, so I'm excited to learn about all the great things that have been happening at Rapid7, which is a lot. Actually, we <laughs> along those lines, we have a lot to cover. So, um, you know, just because what Rapid7 has been doing, especially around your culture and your DEI initiatives, I think it's um, a lot of companies can learn from that. So I, I'm, we're just going to dive right into your background. Uh, so let's talk about you. Like, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? So, I, so, so, so one, I agree with your overall assessment. I think we, in the last four years, not just the company, but it feels like the world has compressed to 20 years into a four-year window. <laughs> it really uh, has. <laughs> so, like, I remember our last conversation, yep. and I had a lot fewer gray hairs then. So, <laughs> I grew up in, in Georgia. Um, and I grew up outside of Atlanta um, in uh, the College Park and Riverdale neighborhoods uh, in, in between those two, two neighborhoods. And I was blessed that I had um, parents who really encouraged um, learning and curiosity uh, and a sense of sort of like wanting to actually do something better. Uh, and, and my parents were both I think what people would call working class, but they, um, you know, they, they worked and they developed and they actually um, continued to change and evolve over time. And for me, you know, I went through multiple stages. I would love to frame life as a straight shot. I had my delusional stage um, where I really, really wanted to be an NBA player. <laughs> um, I had my um, stage where I was super into technology and I was, um, very much wanted to actually create, you know, the next sort of like big technology. I, I thought of myself as a technologist. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think life's all about stages. And I find that sort of like what I think I want to do or want to be evolves over time as I get more perspective experiences and get to meet more people. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what was your first computer then if you were into technology as a, as a child? So this was, it's, it's interesting one because the, First computer, I'm trying to remember my my mother's um, one of her friends at the school system who taught computer classes. Um, her name was Phyllis. She taught me how to program, mm -hmm. and 
I programmed on this chunk of a, and I, I believe it was an IBM, but I'm actually not certain because it was her computer. Right. Um, and it had one of those five and a half inch floppy drives sure, yep. um, that you um, put in. And that's the first computer that I remember um, using intimately. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also remember she gave me my first portable computer, which was like a big suitcase yep, yep. Um, around. One of them was an IBM. Uh, I had an IBM, a Commodore, and then an old Apple II. Wow. Uh, and I cannot remember which order I got them in. And this yep. is a, the, the, the challenges of time. All great, great computers, though. So, yeah. so, yeah. so you did go on to study computer science and electrical in- engineering at Vanderbilt. I did. You know, at, at that time, I thought I was actually going to be more of an electrical engineer than computer scientist, for what it's worth, because uh, I was fascinated and interested in computers. My father was an electrician. And so, you know, originally it was one of those things that um, my family was not sure I could make money on computers. <laughs> so like the, uh, and so, you know, and so, but I, I started Vanderbilt and I, I double majored in electrical engineering and computer science. And I just trended naturally towards the um, computer and computer engineering aspects of how do you build computer systems? How do you design them? I like fell in love with writing machine code. And so like, it just, it was a natural click. And so I had a big bias towards that. And then I had the, the blessings and the opportunity to participate in a program called Inroads, which took um, students of color, students of color um, that necessarily didn't have connections or access and allowed them to actually get experience in corporate America during the summers. And I had some wonderful experiences at what was then the original AT&T uh, and Bell Labs, a long distance company. So, so what did you do during that time? So it was it, it was a phenomenal learning time. So I started off doing a series of rotations across different summers where I did um, systems administration, I did testing. They had me do a little bit of development for a little bit, and it turned out that I learned that I was a great theoretical problem solver um, and designer, but a really bad coder. <laughs> um, and so it was like, don't let him touch <laughs> the code. Right. Um, and so I actually learned a, a tremendous amount, but it was all about sort of like how to build enterprise systems mm-hmm. um, and how to actually manage telecom infrastructure um, was the core focus. And I got rotated around a bunch of different roles. Got it. Okay. And then after Vanderbilt, what'd you do? Uh, after Vanderbilt, I so I was going to go work at AT&T to have the leadership development program. My division got sold to IBM. And so I had to go figure out what I was actually going to go do. Uh, and I remember we got the call. And I had the good fortune that it was still early in the recruiting cycle. So I went back out and met with folks. And because I was trying to figure out what to do, I ended up taking a job at Deloitte Consulting. Now, there's probably a little bit of backstory that's actually, um, that's worthwhile there. I had always dreamed of working. And when I say dream, remember it changed. Once my coach told me I was never gonna be a professional football player or basketball player, I was too small, too slow and too weak. Uh, (laughs) Then once, uh, once that crystallized, and I was focused on technology, you know, AT&T Bell Labs was just like the story thing. And I was always a reader and I've, I've always been a study of history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I deeply admired AT&T's sort of like Bell Labs. The, what happened though with the experience there was that in the mid nineties, it was also very clear from talking to my mentors and my bosses there that AT&T was challenged and declining. And so, uh, and it rattled me a little bit about like, I was, I was not just new to history of it. I was working with some brilliant people and I didn't quite understood how like people this brilliant with this story in the past could actually be on the decline. Right. And so it actually shifted my thinking a little bit. And I was really trying to understand what made organizations and technology companies click. And, you know, as I was trying to figure that out, I forgot who suggested someone says a consultant is a great way to actually get like a broad view of things. So I, I went to go work for Deloitte Consulting. And did you uh, specialize in any particular industry while at Deloitte? No, I actually, I thought I was going to specialize in telcos. Right. Uh, and I went in and I, I was a technology, um, I forget what they call it, technology specialist in the telco practice. I had the, but I ended up working in banking, utilities, telecommunications. 
And what happened was I got in, and this is just dumb luck. And I was actually pissed at the time. Um, I, I, I joined and I, I really wanted to actually go serve customers. And I remember one of the talented senior managers there who's still a, a friend and a supporter and, and, and someone who's quite talented today, Brent Island, was the manager. And he gave me the news that I was going to be working with him in a staff function um, and not on the road and not visiting with clients, but working on Deloitte's own internal uh, got it. Um, things. And it was a massive disappointment because all of my friends out of college were traveling and doing grand adventures. And I'll tell you, I learned so much from um, Brent um, and the and Larry Quinlan. Um, there's a bunch of people that were in the staff office that are all supporting. Mm-hmm. And I got a chance to sit and observe so often the um, executive leadership then of what was Deloitte Consulting over a six-month period. And it ended up catalyzing a perspective um, that is still valuable um, to this day. Um, and then I actually had a different view of assignments. It was more about collecting experiences and serving the customer. Uh, and so I, I went around and I got to work in London and Switzerland doing banking. I got to spend a, a freezing summer um, doing telecom in the Midwest where I, I froze my butt off. Um, <laughs> I got to work for utilities in New York. So it, it ended up being a phenomenal experience. That's awesome. But then you decided to go to business school at HBS. So what, so what was the, the thought there? And like, what advice would you give to others on making that decision to go back to, to B school? Well, so there's, there's two, um, it's interesting. So there's two things. There's one, I did the Harvard Summer Venture and Management Program, which was a program at the time that was designed to provide a broader view of opportunities in the business world in HBS to undergraduate juniors. And so it's a one-week program that I think that was part of HBS's diversity efforts then. And I had not considered it, um, but AT&T sponsored me to go there. And I met a bunch of wonderful people who had not considered, many of them had not considered it. And I met some wonderful faculty, including someone that I still consider a mentor and a friend today, James Cash, who really pushed me to think about what was potential um, in my career. Um, I remember Dr. Cash asking me why I had such little aspirations for myself. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> um, and, and he really pushed me and, and sort of catalyzed me to think more. Um, when I was in consulting, I thought about sort of like what I, I was still trying to figure out, remember, like what made companies tick. So when I was going around visiting all these um, things, I was trying to figure out what made companies tick. And I got a general sense for it. Um, but I, I went to business school for two reasons. One is it was another chance to actually try to figure out and learn about sort of like how things worked and what made things tick. Um, but it was also an opportunity because um, I was starting to explore the idea of playing different roles in technology companies. I still wanted to be in technology, um, but I was deciding that like, okay, maybe I don't want to be on the, um, the strict development architectural design side of the equation um, or the IT side of the equation. Maybe I want to actually think about the business of technology. Uh, and so that was an opportunity switch. You know, what I would tell, advise people is it's not a one size fit all. Um, I would say that I would be skeptical of doing something because other people do it or for the pedigree um, or, or, just for the, or just for the pedigree. Um, and also there's plenty of ways to actually figure out how to learn things. Uh, I learned a tremendous amount. I did not understand anything about finance prior to actually going to HBS. And I almost failed my first finance course at <laughs> Um, you know, I almost got like the lowest out of the three grades, the lowest grades. Um, but I decided like, you know, I could, cause I was good at math. I didn't quite understand how it worked. And I actually took a lot of finance courses. I was determined to be the best. I was determined to really, really deeply understand it. And I actually ended up being fascinated with the entire capital markets. So I learned a tremendous amount, but know what you want to learn. And then the last thing I would say is that figure out what your purpose is. Um, and I think this is true of any graduate school. For me, it was very helpful to actually switch um, the career trajectory about what types I wanted to do. And it provided an avenue of learning and it provided sort of like a period of networking. Uh, For some other folks, if you know what you want to do and you have the access and the means, then I would just say keep working at your company or think about like switching companies to actually do it. And so it's not a one size fit all. So there are some employees who come to me and say, you should definitely go to business school. And there's other ones that say like, you don't need to do it. Like you're on the path that you're going to be on. 
Right. It's not going to actually materially change anything. And if you want to learn this finance course, go to this night school over here to actually to do that particular thing. Yeah, that's great advice. And like as you know, a recruiter, I would share you know similar things of hey, you know, what's your goal? What are you trying to accomplish out of these two years? And um, you know, a lot of times you can go to a startup and and learn you know a ton from there. Uh, that's like a you know tech version of an MBA. So it is exactly. There's many ways to get the experiences. So uh, from there, you ended up joining Microsoft. So what did you do at Microsoft and what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, so I went, to, so I was. I had originally thought about going back to Deloitte. I got some phenomenal advice, um, which was don't focus on the pace that you, actually one of my mentors at Deloitte sent me to the, to the gentleman who was a serial technology entrepreneur. I can't even remember his name today, uh, which is a shame. It was one call. But he, he looked at my background and talked to me. He said, listen, you have lots of potential, but you know, one of the things you decide, are you trying to figure out how fast you want to get there or do you want to be excellent when you get the job that you actually want? Um, and he said, and so it's, I think of my life a little bit as like a, I'm, I'm questing and trying to figure out, like sort of I'm, on a, I'm on a journey of discovery. And so with that, it was uh, a catalyst, a process of like, how do I prepare myself to actually be good when different opportunities arise? And so what's the best preparation? What, should, what, what to go learn? And in many ways today, I still select opportunities about where I spend my time based on sort of like what has the most learning capacity. Um, you know, when I started looking at boards, that was sort of like the primary lens that I actually looked at it from. So at, at that time, and this was a slightly, definitely wrong and slightly elitist statement, I thought I could learn a lot about business from Microsoft because I, again, I grew up in the world of AT&T and Unix and the Linux, and I'm like, well, they have really crappy technology, so they must be geniuses in marketing um, and business. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and I went there and I found that they had some of the best technologists in the world. Right. Uh, and they were actually quite good at the business functions. Exactly. Uh, and so it ended up being a double whammy of, of learning, um, uh, of, of learning when I was actually there. And it provided a great experience for me to learn how to think about business and markets and customers um, and in a different, both more strategic way. And I would say that, you know, Microsoft had a view about like, how do you make, um, it was, what was fascinating is that there was a mentality of not, how do you actually analyze markets just based on sort of like profitability and money in the Gartner Magic Quadrant is how do you actually make millions of end users and customers desperately need and want the technology that you have? And how do you build these order magnitude compelling value propositions? Um, and that was a valuable learning. Now there were some also negative learnings about like there were some things about the culture that I don't think um, were great at that time. Uh, and, and the current leadership has actually addressed that and fixed many of those things. But I had some fantastic learnings. Yeah, and I mean, so you worked on one of the largest releases of SQL Server. I mean, that's a that's at a, that time they've had larger since, right? Yeah. Um, but I got to actually be at SQL Server at a time where it was going from being a small part of Microsoft to a strategic platform mm -hmm. um, that was a multi-billion-dollar business that was core to lots of its enterprise growth yeah. and the catalyst for lots of its enterprise growth. Uh, to work with some really, really smart people. But also like, you know, what I find is that there's these moments where you actually learn things, um, but there's also moments where things are happening um, and being in them. And that's, by the way, I think the last four years have been that. Like, like, like these moments are, you know, I, I think about sort of like, um, you know, my observation is that like you have these moments where things move in predictable ways. And those are, those are great and those fine. Mm -hmm. But then you have these moments where things accelerate and the potential of the world to be a very different place and for things to change and companies to change and positions to change, it just drastically accelerates. And I've had the, the benefit of being at a number of different companies um, in those moments where, where that was changing. That was definitely true of Microsoft's evolution into an enterprise player at that time. So, so what did you do after Microsoft? So at Microsoft, you know, I, I would say I learned a lot. There was, um, it was big um, and I wanted to actually really apply some of the general practices uh, on a smaller scale. Mm 
-hmm. Because, you know, it would be like a long career path to actually say like, all right, do I really understand how this stuff works? And so I was looking at a, what are smaller playgrounds to test out the theories of how to build, you know, uh, you know, my attitude is how to build products that live and how to build organizations that thrive. And so when I say products that live, it's products that basically like have their own, um, have their own connection with people um, that have their own sense of spread and adoption. Um, like you build them and like people want them, they're connected to them, they value them and organizations that thrive is exactly what it is. I, I wanted a playground. So I joined a company called Parallels, um, which was one of my friends who I had worked with, Kurt Daniel at Microsoft, um, had introduced me to the founder, um, Sergey Bilisov, and serial entrepreneur, and you know, willing to give space in the playground to actually go sort of build a company um, with some others. And they had a great team in place, and it was a chance to actually try and build that. So I joined as, a, as an executive in marketing. Mm -hmm. uh, at a time when they were hitting their catalytic moment, um, which was they were actually the virtualization technology for Macs uh, at a time when Macs were taking off. So again, it was one of those cycles where like the world was changing. This is sort of like the resurgence of the Mac and Parallels at that time was a key part of the resurgence of the Mac strategy because it allows you to run Windows on a Mac. So do you think you always wanted to be a CEO? I mean, when I look at the development of your career, right, you studied computer science, you did your rotational program at AT&T, consulting at Deloitte, HBS, learning, you know, things like finance and lots of other, you know, very meaningful topics, product management at Microsoft, now marketing at Parallel. So like, it just seemed like you were building all these different facets of learning to eventually, you know, reach a point of, of, of leading and being a CEO. You know, it's, it's a good question. So I would say, um, I always wanted to build things and I always wanted to actually, you say like, did you want to actually um, be a leader in a company or organization? Yes. Did you want to build and create something that hadn't been done? Yes. I was not that obsessed with the CEO. In fact, even when I took the CEO job of Rapid7, um, I was with some sort of trepidation because I'm just like, am I going to be good? I, I always wake up every day thinking about like, Am I good at this job? Um, because there's some things that I've actually built, but some things that are not natural. Like I am not a natural extrovert. So like, you know, like, you know, like cocktail parties like are anxiety producing. Uh, people are just like, that's strange because you give speeches and you give talks. I'm like, yes, but in speeches and talks, the audience is like 20 feet away. There's like a big <laughs> distance around me and everyone right. else. <laughs> so like, um, and so, I would say that I wanted to look, I wanted to be a leader. I wanted to actually create something that had impact and that was memorable. So I, I would say I was obsessed with the idea of creating things that were memorable. I was not that obsessed with the idea of what the specific role um, was in doing that. Um, but I, I was always focused about building the capacity to actually do it. And I'm always focused about making sure that I was not the bottleneck. Um, you know, people come to me for leadership advice all the time. And what I tell, tell them is that you can, and I, I know this is sort of a, a little bit counter um, today is, you know, but my view of it is you can actually have um, high impact um, and pursue excellence um, and be extraordinary, or you can actually have um, satisfaction and comfort, but you can't have both. Um, and what I mean by that is that, and you always have to have self-awareness. And so self-awareness is required and self-management is required. But what I mean by that is that you have to do and develop in ways that are uncomfortable. So if you're progressing as a, you know, on, on the leadership trend and dimension is you should be uncomfortable most of the time. Like, you know, I looked back sort of like two years ago and I realized that um, I was holding Rapid Sevens back because we did not have as rich a partner ecosystem um, built around it, and we did not have some of the connections, and we did not have some of the, um, I would say, the buzz. And we still don't today. And part of it is that, like, Keith, you are amazing, 
but like I actually don't wake up saying like I want to actually talk to me. I hate seeing my name in, <laughs> in the print and in media. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, and still, that's part of what I'm supposed to do as a, as a job today. Of course, yeah. Uh, and so part of the team was pushing like, okay, I got to get more comfortable doing. Um, I got to get more comfortable doing this. And likewise, I had to actually go get comfortable going to the cocktail parties, building relationships because that was my job. My yeah. job was to help our cus our company build the relationships that was going to make our customers successful. Um, And so, you know, the the long way of answering around it is that it's constantly an evaluation of, am I willing to do the hard work that's needed to not just be um, CEO, um, but to be a great one and to make sure that I'm pushing the trajectory forward. Uh, And there's definitely times where I look at it and say that I'm not sure. Uh, I'm like, oh, this needs to be done. And do I really want to do it? And I have to actually sort of like, because there's a cost to actually doing it. Um, and typically it's not comfortable and it's not fun. Yeah. Well, what's, uh, so what brought you to Rapid7? And then like, you, so when you entered the company, you were not CEO, but like, so what was your role initially and where, what stage was the company at? So um, when I joined, I joined as an operating role as the CMO and, and, and head of operations. What brought me to Rapid7 was, so one, I got to actually work with sort of like a phenomenal leader, Mike Tukin who had joined the company as a COO and eventually became CEO. Um, the second thing is I met Alan Matthews and Toss and the founders and eventually Christina Luconi, who you know well, who mm-hmm. joined roughly the same time, a little bit later than me. Um, but Alan had this big thesis that culture was a difference maker. And, and on my path to learning, that's everyone talks about culture today. But yeah, like for that context, not, this is what, 2000 and- 2008, like this was not like the- this is the world of best practices, the <laughs> sales model optimization. Right. This is not a world of culture. So this, so I was actually interested. So I, I joined Rapid7 because I was curious. I'm like, that it was a good opportunity. Um, the good folks at Bain, who eventually be, both were mentors and sponsors. Um, we also talked about the fact that if I did a good job, they would like look at helping me find other founding teams to actually work with. So I viewed it as, as, as a step on that, on that trajectory. And but, but when I joined, it was an interesting idea about like, um, not just that culture matters. And I'll talk about Alan's and I'll talk about Christina's view of this, but Alan had this view of getting people to believe in the impossible things created the magic that allowed you to actually build these products that live and these organizations that thrive. Is that belief was the missing equation. And he had this thesis that you had to, remember back at the time period that people were too focused on just the analytics and they were under um, estimating the power of belief. Wow. And I said, that's worth exploring. That's worth understanding. That's worth seeing if it's true. Um, and I, I, I joined and then Christina Luconi joined and she put lots of that theory to actually work about like, how do we create a systems of belief that we actually have together? Um, that are not about just sort of like what we do when people are watching, but it's what we do and how we behave when no one's looking and how we actually mm-hmm. treat each other um, and what sort of like motivates us. So she had this sort of like motivational sense of belief, but that also was not about sort of like the words on the wall, but it was about like, how do we live them? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of like this lived belief thing. And, and that was, I would say, worth learning and turned out to be true. I wasn't sure if it was true at first, just to be clear. It's I'm a convert to the power of culture, um, not an originator of it. Uh, but that's why I joined and that's why I stayed because it was, it was a journey to actually really understand that. Well, just like, as I do want to dig deeper into the culture aspect of Rapid7 because it's such a critical piece, but let's just, in case people aren't familiar with Rapid7, like what, you know, what, what do you guys do? Where do you fit within the whole cybersecurity industry and current you know, size of the company and yeah. whatever you can share? So we focus on the security management problem. So the way to think about it is that technology is expanding at a rapid rate, and we have to actually expand the capacity to manage that environment securely. Uh, and so in order to do that, Rapid7 provides a massive data analytics engine that allows us to actually stream and ingest large volumes of data about the technology environment and what's happening in the technology environment from a cybersecurity perspective, analyze that stream of data um, for both vulnerabilities, misconfigurations, as well as attacks and compromises, um, and then automate um, and orchestrate the remediation um, to fix the vulnerabilities, 
um, change the configurations to a more secure state um, and close down and stop attacks. That's the fundamental. So, you know, we think about it as what we call security operations, but it's really focused about like, how do you actually help security teams manage technology at scale? Um, and we do that through data analytics and automation. Which is a, you know, yeah. you guys went public and you're, you know, a very- Yeah, it's a, you know, we're, we're, we moved somewhere around it, but we're $4 billion sort of like market cap company. Um, we just capped off another year of extraordinary growth. Um, and, and, and we're in one of the fastest growing segments of the market overall. Yeah, it's such a great story. And like, the, I mean, an IPO is a milestone on the life cycle of a company. It's not the end of the road. It's there's a lot of work afterwards. But what was that like? Like, go, you know, because you did end up taking over as CEO and president of the company and took them on this growth path that has continued, of course. But when you finally hit that milestone, like, what was that? Was that, you know, particular day like of going public? So the, the day of going, so, you know, before, so, you know, one, the process of going public is fascinating. And I got some things right and a lot of things wrong um, <laughs> in, 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 in the process. So one, you know, you do these road shows and you talk to lots of investors and, you, and you're telling your story. Right. Um, we had a good story, but there was lots of promise of story. Like if you sat back in that story in 2015, you were like, oh. one, you had two observations. These guys are audacious, but there's a lot of stuff that's on the come. There's a lot of stuff that's in the future mm -hmm. um, that they have to get right. Yeah. Retrospect, we got most of that stuff right. We went from being a single product on prem perpetual company to a multi-product SaaS security operations um, company in the cloud with 90% recurring revenues uh, and growing an extraordinary amount over the last five years. But you couldn't see that back then. So like you had to have lots of belief. Right. And the other thing that one of our investors told us later is that the team seemed smart, but boy, was it complex. I did not understand how to talk to investors in a simple way. Uh, and so that was a whole learning experience itself. But the roadshow itself was fascinating because it was the first time I had ever been on a private plane. Um, it was the, and I remember the bankers um, telling us like, you are the strangest people um, we've ever done this roadshow with because we would actually get on, I guess you're supposed to like drink and go party. And we would actually, you know, get on, we would do our customer meetings. And then the work day would start at six o'clock we would get back on the plane and we would actually be doing all of our meetings, all of our emails and we'd land and we'd keep working straight through to 11 o'clock. And then we would get up at 5.30 and do our workouts. And so like, they're just like, you guys are dull. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, but it was a, um, it was a different experience. Like, you know, being, uh, it's not what I expected. And just to be clear, our backers had to talk me into to it. Because mm -hmm. again, I was not, um, I was not highly enamored of Wall Street. Um, like there's some people, I have friends who've wanted their whole life to actually go public. Right. And for me, that was not the desire because I had a view of Wall Street as a bunch of short timers and that companies that went public started focusing on artificial profit metrics and not their customers and not their employees. Mm. Um, and it, it turned out that that wasn't true. You just have to do an extraordinary job of communication. And what I learned along the way, and by the way, our stock was volatile, it's up and down, and, and, and it took me a while to learn it, but there's a lot of investors who are willing to make long-term investments. Um, but you have to clearly articulate what you're doing. You have to execute against that. Um, you have to provide evidence against that. And what we found is we have a set of investors that are long-term oriented and understand the value of what we're creating for our clients and the value of the culture on sort of like our employees. And they're invested behind that and supporting that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great point. Now I do want to jump back into the culture piece of rapid seven. So, um, you know, culture has been such a critical piece and it's very, very outward spoken about how important the culture is at rapid seven, even from the basics of, you know, employees are referred to as, as moose, which I love that piece because it's, you know, singular plural is moose. So there's no, you know, it's, 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 there's no I, there's no team, you know, it's all, you know, together moose. Um, so how do you maintain a company's culture as you scale, right? When you hit those milestones of, of scaling a company, how do you keep that you know, culture intact? Well, I would say it's, it, you, you, you don't keep it intact, you work at it every day. And so if, if it's, um, if at any moment in time, 
you're not attentive to it, then it frays. Um, so, you know, my attitude is I wake up every day and there's only two, there's two questions um, or three questions that are actually on the mind. One, am I doing something today that's going to make me, that I'm going to learn and make me better today than tomorrow? Um, the second thing is, um, is the stuff that I'm doing today creating um, an impact such that basically every day, either you're becoming more relevant uh, to your customers or you're becoming less relevant. What did I do today that actually made us more relevant to our customers? Um, and every day, the attitude is that you're actually increasing relevance or you're decreasing relevance. There's no stagnation. Now, you might not see the outward results of that for a long time, but there's no stagnation. And then the last one, to, to your point, your question is every day you actually have to tend the culture. Um, I, I think the best analogy that, that I've ever heard is one of my mentors, um, General Stan McChrystal, talked about the evolution of military leadership. Um, from the patent style, sort of like general as the director on the field to the gardener. And the reason I think that's such a compelling analogy is that like things can flourish, but if you don't till it and garden it and weed it every single day, um, then you don't actually produce the harvest. And in, in, a, in, in the same way is that you actually have to actually tend to the culture every single day. Yeah, no, it's definitely, definitely important, especially as you scale. Now, another piece that uh, Rapid7 has been very outward facing vocal about is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, companies are focused on this, which is good, right? But back in 2018, Rapid7 put a stake in the ground to be 50-50. So, so, so what was meant by that? And then, you know, wh where did you end up, you know, in, in terms of that goal at 2020? Yeah, so you know, we looked around the organization and we saw roughly two thirds. This is a little bit imprecise, but two thirds of the organization um, was um, white men, lots of very talented people, and a third were um, women and people of color. Uh, and of that, the people of color were like three or four percent. And so, you know, we looked at that and said that, well, we have a very talented team, but why is that? I think, I think many times these things have to start with the why. Um, and, and, and so like, why is that the case? And, and, and it's interesting is we had started doing a lot more early level hiring too, because um, we were building our college programs. And we saw the same thing reflected in the college programs. But the data says that basically, if you look at college graduation rates, women are the majority of college graduates. Hmm. Um, yeah. And if you have women and people of color, then you actually get like a 60, 40, 70, 30. So you're just like, okay, yes, this is the way that it is in the company, but like even in our college program, like why is, so why, why is this the case? At the same time, and this is important, this gets mixed, is that we were actually in the process of actually saying, how do we take the company to the next level? Um, and how do we actually raise our standards? And, and one of the things that we, we realized is that we had an inaccurate view and a cloistered view and a narrow view of what it took to actually be great. And it wasn't actually great. It was in some ways it was actually mediocre. So we started with actually, how do we actually raise the standards and how do we pursue excellence and how do we actually be great? And we got very clear about what that meant. And these are all of the cultural values that you actually hear us actually um, talk about sort of like today um, about like, how do we actually have people and teams that have impact together? How do we challenge conventions? How do we actually have people that are aggressively pursuing curiosity um, and, and learning? How do we have people that have that never done mentality? So we actually looked at raising the standards. And then we said, look, if we actually really focus on our values, then over time, and we're actually pursuing finding the best talent and the best people, our thesis was that if we did that, over time, an indicator that we're actually we're really living our values and pursuing our standards is that that should be reflected in the diversity of the team. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is when we dug into the um, both the hiring and the teams and the promotions, what we actually found was things that were not based on standards and values. It was things that was based on networks. And, 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 and the networks were closed. And by the way, if you talk to people, they're like, well, this works. This worked for me at this company. Like I hired this team because I worked with them before at this company. And the analogy that I use for people, like, you know what? You're right. It worked. But that would be like the same thing. You know what? When I was 16, I ran a race and I wore Nikes. 
And right. so therefore, the only shoes to win races in are Nikes. Right. Yes, it worked, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that's the only way or the best way. It's a stagnation mentality. Mm -hmm. So we started with excellence and we started by saying, listen, we're going to look at diversity as a leading indicator of are you actually pursuing excellence in team building and are you actually getting out of your cloistered networks and pursuing the best talent and building the best team? Um, because the thing that we know is that the company that wins in techs are the people that actually have the best talent and the people that actually can lead the best teams and the best teams are not cohesive monolithic teams that all think the same way, act the same way, have the same beliefs and have the same backgrounds. Uh, and so if we're going to build that capacity, we have to build it. And then once we set that standard, we said, listen, what we're going to measure is our expectation when we look at the data about the population, society, and everything else, is that it should be a no-brainer for it to actually be 50-50. 50% women and people of color um, by 2020. You look at graduation rates, you look at people in the overall market. If we're going out finding the best talent, that should, we should see natural changes because we know the problem that we actually have is closed networks. Um, and closed networks were not the pursuit of excellence. Uh, so we set that and said we we're going to measure it. And we said we're going to actually look at sort of like if you actually have a pipeline of people that all look the same, is that's going to be an indicator. So if you say that that's truly the best talent in the world, that's fine. But we're going to inspect and say, is that really the best talent? Anytime we inspect it, we find like, oh, I recruit where I went to college. Well, that's not you pursuing the best talent. That's kind of like a lazy recruiting mentality. When we did that, we set the standard. We didn't set because it's all people had a whole bunch of like commotion about quotas. We said we're going to measure it because we measure everything that we actually do. But we set the standard and it turned out over time we actually hit it. Now, to your question about like how did we do against the uh, objective, um, we did not hit 50% uh, by 50-50. It ended up being 49.7%. Uh, yeah, and, and, and we don't round up. So it's a culture where we don't round up. It's 49.7%. Uh, we came up a little bit shy uh, of the goal, but from a third to 49%, that's progress. And right. we celebrate the progress. And now we're setting new aspirational goals. And in the same sort of method, our um, our people of color uh, population increased by three, three, 4X uh, in that same time period. So like it was substantive growth universally. Sometimes you have this is just in one, like it's just women. Um, and here we actually saw movement across the board, but it started with standards and the pursuit of excellence and articulating it as, as that and the uh, population naturally changed because we had to work more about how we recruit it, but also the inclusion um, and how we thought about promotions and how we actually thought about are people living the values or are they actually just biasing their personal preferences, which we had a lot of and most organizations have a lot of. Well, as I mentioned before, this is on the radar as it should be for most companies on building a more diverse workplace and more inclusive. So what advice would you give to other you know, executives, CEOs, chief people officer, regardless of role, like, you know, this is on the radar. So what advice would you give to other companies on you know, how, to, how to accomplish similar feats? Yeah. So, so the first thing I get asked this a lot is your attitude matters. If you think this is a way to appease social pressure then you're probably going to fail because you actually don't understand that. What I found, uh, not just here, um, but other companies have asked me some talk to info and stuff like that, is the root cause of lots of this stuff are closed networks. Uh, and you can call that unintentional bias, however you want to actually do it. But it's the belief that basically um, the only way to rent a race is in Nikes. Because um, it worked for me before, so this is the only way to do it. I think about that as sort of like not just closed networks, but also a lazy mentality because it actually lacks curiosity. Um, the second thing is you actually have outright bias um, where you have people that are, they would not say that they're racist, but they actually have a bias for people that act like them and behave like them. Um, and so like, I want to recruit athletes because I was an athlete. Well, how are you going to actually get the right proportion of women um, if you actually are only recruiting athletes, because as you know, we have a problem with college athletics. Um, and so uh, there's plenty of talented women athletes, but it's still a, it's, it's still a bias that actually sort of like matters. I have a bias. And by the way, we still have these things that wrap us up today. It's, it's like I said, it's gardening is never ending. Um, is that like, I view leadership as people that sort of like, um, that sort of like stand their ground and have a, a, a good, you know, and have a good debate uh, with people. Well, how you think about that as introverts versus extroverts, 
Um, and I noticed that when the when you, when the female on your team did that, you called her whiny. So what's that about? Um, well, that's a bias, uh, and, and you definitely have racial bias. Um, you have gender biases, and so we have to acknowledge that those exist today. And I can tell you, when you dig into it, you find them. Like you know, we dug into them, we found racial bias, gender bias, all all other types of bias because I. You know, I have a view of leadership that I actually grew up with, and I really have a hard time processing a view of leadership is different. So we put different slates up for promotion. Um, it's actually different. So my advice to people is start with the mentality that you're actually pursuing excellence. And excellence means that you should actually, your team, you and your team should not be hiring, recruiting, and promoting in your comfort zone. Because uh, if you are, if you say the only way to do it is in my comfort zone and that's your behavior, then what you're saying essentially is, I know all the best people in the world in my closed network. Um, it's like sort of like the kid who said like, I met everyone I need to meet at Harvard. If you really believe that, then that's unredeemable. It's not true, uh, but that's okay. If you believe that's true, then this conversation isn't for you. But if you say, listen, I wanna find and I wanna discover the best and I wanna attract the best talent in the world, then your behavior is different uh, and diversity is a leading indicator. The other thing is I think you just have to be standards-based. I heard a wonderful talk um, by Ken Chenault when he was actually talking the other day about his journey and what he actually found in his offices as he did as, as he went around the world sort of like really driving standards-based hiring. And what he found was that, you know, on the promotions, it was not standards-based, it was relationship-based. Um, and they were losing, he said, talked about one of his offices where they actually was, it was an underperforming office. And when they got in, it was because all the promotions had been done based on relationships. Mm -hmm. And they had passed off a bunch of talented, in this case, black people, um, because the promotion was not. We have to fundamentally acknowledge that we exist in a world where lots of promotions and lots of opportunities are based on relationships. Now, I'm not saying relationships are a bad thing. I benefit from relationships. Um, I try to help people um, in the networks, but if that's the primary thing and the only thing, then that, that not only is a lack of diversity, it is a lack of performance. People struggle with this idea that diverse teams um, do better. And it's just like, they kind of believe it, but they don't really. I said, listen, do you think that teams based on nepotism are likely to perform highly? They're like, no, of course, nepotism would do it. I'll say, you have a team that's based on nepotism. Now, it's not family, but it's actually based on your closed network. So you presume that the only talent in the world is sort of like, the few people that you and your team members know, and that is a blind spot for you. And people start to think about the world a little differently. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's such a important topic. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's just amazing advice. I mean, companies need to figure this stuff out and determine what biases exist and how to train or educate or inform people so that hopefully the best team does come together. Absolutely. You know, what about, um, you know, just kind of, the, you know, thinking about, um, you know, outside of rapid seven. So what are like some, some, uh, advice you would give to somebody that is interested in, in making that, you know, path to a CEO, like what advice would you give to someone? We kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but what, like, what, what advice would you give to someone who's interested in building a career path to see to a CEO position? I'd say, look, you, there's all kinds of kinds. And so you have to figure out like, your path yourself. I am a, I am a, I am a um, explorer, um, you know, a quester, like I go on journeys. So I don't think about, so like I definitely want to do this. I think about what are interesting journeys. I would say if someone says, absolutely, I want to be a CEO, then I would give them the same advice that the gentleman gave me is observe and learn sort of like what good CEOs do. I can, I can provide some perspective and then go collect experiences that actually prepare you um, for that. Um, the, the reason that I think that's a little bit hard is that if you're starting off your, your, your journey today and you're 22 and you wanna be a CEO at 42, which is a fairly accelerated path, but maybe it's 32, who knows what's gonna be the skills and requirements and the backgrounds that are actually needed yeah. 20 years from now. Um, you know, like there's a good argument today that like I, it, it could be totally possible that I would be a failed CEO today because I'm not multilingual. My Spanish is horrible. But, but you know that could be like a hardcore requirement 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that you, you should actually 
even if you're not sort of a person that goes on a journey, you should, I would say, think about what are the skills you're developing, but then reassess frequently sort of like what are new avenues that you're observing that successful CEOs are doing in ways that you need to develop. And I would say, don't focus on the speed that you actually get there. Focus on building the capacity to be excellent when you get there. That was the best advice I ever got. Got it. Okay. So, so what do you like to do for, for fun outside of work? So outside of work, I would say that my kids and family takes up a fair amount of the time. I would say that the things that I typically would do for fun, I just don't get much. I, I used to love martial arts and I have no capacity or time um, for it because it was just a way to relax. And so it's a little bit like dance and the feeling that people, some people get with that. Um, I, um, I like sports that actually require some sense of sort of like precision and concentration. Um, and so like, I've, I've tried to teach myself archery over COVID. Mm, um, I grew up uh, in the South. So I used to go to the shooting range a lot, um, just because it required so like this combination of precision, but also relaxation and concentration. Um, I am increasingly enjoying, um, kayaking. Um, cause I do that with my, um, with the kids, um, and that's good fun. Um, so I would say it's all over, but I tend to enjoy physical endeavors or endeavors that actually require sort of like the mind, body concentration and relaxation to actually all be inhibiting the same space at once. Very, very cool. Well, Corey, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great work that Rapid7 is doing, all the advice around, you know, culture, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, uh, you know, all the other details around you know, how to build a, ro- a path to CEO. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.